Take your Bibles now and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Considering a couple of verses here this morning as we are surveying every word of uh, the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. So I was reading this week and preparing for this morning. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his, one of his sermons on this passage, he reminded me of something he's, he said in his book there, which was a recorded sermon. He said, um, how important is it for us to preach through the Bible verse by verse because we come to passages like this which many ministers would say, I don't want to preach on that topic. <laughs> but because we preach verse by verse through the Scriptures, we have to do it. We talk about topics like divorce, and we do that not shying away from it because the Lord Himself has instructed us, and He's given us His wisdom here. So we will read, if you'll indulge me, we'll pick up just beginning with verse 13. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. We'll read 13 through 20. And then we'll skip over to verses 31 and 32. This is God's word. For God's people, we read it as an act of worship. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes, And Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And skip over to verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You so much that you have, You've given us much more than some sort of ethereal wisdom. We, we don't read in Your Word that the key to the universe is one hand clapping. Instead, for the good of Your people, You have caused Your Word to be put into writing. You have revealed 
wisdom to men throughout time. And we have it now in its fulfillment, in its fullness, in this Word. Even touching on such things as divorce. So that we are not left in the dark, we don't have to figure things out on our own, but we know, even in this area, how to live to the glory of Jesus Christ, both now and always. And we praise you in His name. Amen. If someone asked you, what are the three ingredients to a healthy humanity, what would you tell them? What are the three things, or maybe you couldn't narrow it down to three things. Maybe you'd say there are far more than three things that are needed for a a healthy humanity. Maybe you think about where we are today and you say, well, we need to reform all of these various institutions and, and make them better. We need to reclaim uh, the federal government and make it better. And, and you could give me a whole litany of things um, that need to happen. But I'll suggest to you that from a biblical perspective, there are three ingredients. Three ingredients to a healthy humanity. Where do we find those three ingredients to a healthy humanity? Well, we find them in Genesis 1, in Genesis 2, and in Genesis 3. The first ingredient to a healthy humanity is Sabbath observance. Ceasing from labor and our worldly recreations and employments on the Lord's day and committing the day to His worship. We find uh, numero uno in Scripture in Genesis chapter 2. The Lord created the Sabbath day and made it holy. He's given it to us as a gift. Number two, work. On the other hand, work. Giving a day's labor for a day's wage. In other words, not robbing our employer by slacking off and using his time for our own indulgences. God has created you to work, to take the soil of creation and make something of it to redound to his glory. And lastly, you know where I'm going. The third ingredient to a healthy humanity is marriage. Holding up marriage as an institution created by God for His glory. In this way, Sabbath observance, working, upholding work and labor as to the glory of God and the institution of marriage, these three things will lead to a healthy humanity. Sadly, you know this, The modern church has almost totally abandoned all three of these. Consider that professing Christians are just as likely to get a divorce as non-believers. Just a few years ago in a survey conducted by George Barna, he showed that this was true. Roughly 30% of non-believers are likely to have had at least one divorce in their lifetime, and the same percentage is true for those who profess faith. As we think about that statistic, it isn't hard to relate the subject of marriage and divorce back to this, this whole sort of overarching theme that Christ has given us, that original statement. He said, you are the salt of the earth. You are 
the light of the world. What light is shining on a fallen world when professing marriages fail just as often as non-believing marriages? You, You see the relation. What are we saying to a fallen world? There's no hope for me and there's no hope for you. What is the power of the redemption of Jesus Christ if it doesn't begin to show some power in our day-to-day relationships? Think about this. Think about the whole trajectory of this sermon. Anger. Jesus has addressed our anger. You who are angry with your brother and you're content with calling him a fool or telling him that you hate him rather than pursuing reconciliation or lust. Giving in to your lust and reminding you that to look upon a woman with lust in your heart, in other words, with the intent of lusting after her, and the same thing goes for women, you're committing adultery. Do you see now? What do you think are the two biggest factors in failed marriages? Anger and lust. And in this passage... Christ continuing to teach us about our human relationships is reminding us that God's plan for creation is lifelong monogamous marriage. And Jesus warns those who pursue divorce frivolously that they are not righteous. Instead, are magnifying sin. Look with me at our text again, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So as we begin looking at this passage, immediately we know we've got to do a little bit of historical digging. There's something going on here, something in this culture that we don't readily understand. What is Moses having to have to do with certificates of divorce? And so The first thing we're going to consider is Moses and certificates of divorce from verse 31. To understand this, go back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Hold your place there at Matthew 5 and go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. You've got to understand the full context of what's going on in this culture to get what Jesus is teaching here. In Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, under the Mosaic economy, uh, God had laid down some parameters for pursuing a separation of marriage. Let's read together Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, (coughs) if then... She finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, 
who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So here, under the Mosaic economy, uh, there is the need for an injunction. Men, evidently, were getting a divorce very frivolously. For any reason whatsoever that they found in their wife, they were putting uh, putting their wives away. And so Moses now, in his code, formalized a process for godly divorce. Men could no longer divorce for any reason after Moses sets this in place. It must be for a limited reason. Go back to verse 1 of chapter 24 of Deuteronomy. If the wife finds no favor in her husband's eyes because he has found, what? Some indecency in her. Now, in other places in the Old Testament, this term indecency relates to uh, nakedness. There is some sexual sin that has gone on in this woman's life. And so Moses set down a strict process. What is to happen if this is found out? Well, the man has to give her a certificate of divorce. He fills out a piece of paper with the reason for, uh, that he has found for divorce. He puts it in her hand and sends her away. We remember that God Himself did the same thing from Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 6-8. through 8, When Israel committed harlotry against the Lord, committed adultery against him, what do we find? God gave a decree of divorce against her and against the people of Israel. He divorced her. What is the man to do? According to Deuteronomy 24, he must put her out of his house and he must not remarry that woman. If he does so, he defiles the land of Israel. Another thing that you must understand as you think about Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5 is that in Israel, if you committed adultery, whether you were a man or a woman, you were subject to the death penalty. (coughs) Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. So in effect, if there was adultery in a marriage, that marriage would come to an end by default because those who were in the adulterous relationship would be put to death. This is the way it was under the Mosaic economy. But I want you to notice one other thing as we think about All that Moses taught concerning adultery, turn back to Numbers chapter 5. Numbers chapter 5. You might say, well, that's fairly convenient. Anybody can make make a claim of adultery. 
Anybody can say, oh, my wife or oh, my husband has been in an unfaithful relationship and and can make it up. I can come up with a reason to put him out if I want to. Well, God thought of that too. And for that reason, in Numbers chapter 5, beginning in verse 11, we find that there was actually an objective test for adultery. And we're taught there in Numbers chapter 5 that if the spirit of jealousy came upon a man and he suspected that his wife had been unfaithful to him, whether she really had or not, there was a process for handling that suspicion. Read with me in Numbers chapter 5 verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel. If any man's wife goes astray and breaks faith with him, if a man lies with her sexually and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband and she is undetected though she has defiled herself and there is no witness against her since she was not taken in the act and if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes over him and he is jealous of his wife, though she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest and bring the offering required of her, a tenth of an ephah of barley flour. So notice, first of all, that a suspicion of guilt is not sufficient to put her away. God prevents frivolous treatment of wives. And it goes on, He shall pour oil on the offering of barley flour and put no frankincense on it, for it is a grain offering of jealousy, a grain offering of remembrance, bringing iniquity to remembrance. And there's a a strange process. The priest would take ashes and put them in water. And he would make the woman drink this water of defilement. And if the woman had truly committed adultery, it would cause her abdomen to swell and her thigh to fall away. And there are reasons for that that we won't get into at the moment. But what I would have you notice from this whole procedure is that God has established an objective way. If a man suspected his wife of adultery, God had established an objective way of establishing that Adultery, in other words, God is protecting the wives of these men via due process. I would have you note just one other thing from this whole process. I want you to note that church leadership plays a central role in assisting couples to resolve issues. Do you notice that? Where is the man to bring his wife? Not to the judge but to the priest. Officials of the church are the ones who are to try the case. Some think it shameful to seek the church's assistance with personal issues. No, it is shameful, shamefully selfish to allow your troubles to fester beyond help 
And I would just say to you, each and every one of you, because everyone goes through difficulties of this nature, that God has placed you in the church for a reason. And notice that this man was to bring his wife to the church. Why why the long, drawn-out process? Well, perhaps to give her an opportunity to confess and to seek reconciliation in that moment before we got to the whole drinking of the water. Remember that God has placed you in the church for a reason. But this is, this is the process. If there is sexual immorality, if there is even the suspicion of sexual immorality, God had under the Mosaic economy forbidden people to frivolously pursue divorce. He had forbidden it. He had squelched it. He had put the kibosh on it. Don't do that. There is only one reason to bring your marriage to an end under the old covenant. Unfaithfulness. On the one hand, this requirement established order among God's people. The Israelites, they could not have a wild west sort of society. That was not God's intent. But there is another aspect to to consider. What does this say about God's view of marriage? How does God want you to view marriage? When He has established all of this procedure, all of this ceremony to go through to nullify that bond. What is He saying to you? What was He saying to His people? Should you hold marriage in high esteem? Should you view it as a holy union? Yes, you should. And likewise, we remember God's express sentiment toward divorce, don't we, in Malachi chapter 2. God hates divorce. He hates it. Remember, That divorce is only a reality in a world that has been affected by sin. The only reason that Moses had to implement this policy, or God through Moses, is because the people that God created are fallen. That is the only reason that marriages come to an end. What God is doing is emphasizing the solemnity of marriage to His people. Marriage is a solemn thing. You you are joined in marriage to one person because God has joined you. God has put you together. And it it is His express will that one man should be married to one woman for life. This is what God set down as a creation mandate in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. But we remember another thing, don't we? That marriage is hard. I always get a chuckle when I think about Martin Luther and his marriage to Catherine von Borer. You remember that these men, these reformers, many of them began in uh, monastic situations. They thought for a long time that marriage was not for them, that they were 
bound by God to live celibate lives their whole life. This is true of Luther and Calvin. And then Luther began to study the Scriptures and he found that this was not the case. And he met a woman by the name of Catherine von Bora. And his pet name for his beloved wife was a play on the German name Catherine. It was Kette. And Kette in German means chains. <laughs> so he would call his wife Kette to, to jab at her a little bit. But we remember that even amongst the best of men and women, marriage is hard. It is the union of two selfish, sinful people. Yes, I'm looking at all of you. Your marriage is hard, not because of the person you're sitting next to, but because of the person sitting in your seat. The period of dating and romance hide all of that. But soon after marriage, the selfishness and the sinfulness appears. And so I say to every couple that I have the opportunity to counsel this one thing. Your commitment to your spouse will only be as strong as your commitment to Christ. God will bring you together with someone and it is so important that you remember that He has created marriage. He loves it. And He hates divorce. So much so that He implemented all of these procedures to prevent it. So Jesus said, going back now to Matthew 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So Jesus is quoting here. He's quoting directly from Deuteronomy chapter 24. We've just seen that. He's not altering. He's not adulterating. He's not nullifying anything that Moses said. But he notes something in verse 32. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And so here we have to consider a second thing. We've looked at Moses and certificates of divorce. You need to understand how the Pharisees used Moses. How were they in Jesus' time looking back on Deuteronomy 24? Well, in Jesus' day, there was a range of opinions on divorce amongst the religious leaders in Palestine. Some were very, very strict. And they said the only reason that you can release your wife from this contractual bond is on the basis of unchastity. But there were others who said, actually, any reason will do. So you could divorce your wife in Jesus' day if she spoiled your meal. If she looked at you sideways one day. Or just because you met someone else that you preferred. It had again become something of a wild west of divorce. Listen to the historian Josephus speak of his own marriage. Josephus sent his wife away because he said, being displeased with her behavior. 
Then I took as wife a woman from Crete. Or listen to the testimony of, uh, uh, from the book of Ecclesiasticus written uh, before the, the incarnation of Christ. This is in the Apocrypha, by the way. There is nothing so bad as a bad wife. May the fate of the wicked overtake her. It is as easy for an old man to climb a sand dune as for a quiet husband to live with a nagging wife. Do not be enticed by a woman's beauty or set your heart on possessing her. If a woman is supported by his wife, he must expect tantrums, shamelessness, and outrage. A bad wife brings humiliation, downcast looks, and a wounded heart. Slack of hand and weak of knee is the man whose wife fails to make him happy. Woman is the origin of sin, and it is through her that we all die. Do not leave a leaky cistern to drip or allow a bad wife to say what she likes. If she does not accept your control, divorce her and send her away. Literally, that last statement is cut her off from your flesh. So you see, this was the perspective that had been adopted by many of the religious leaders in Jesus' day, including the Pharisees. If your wife doesn't please you, send her away. Any reason will do. Cut her off from your flesh. The perversion of the Pharisees took what was established by Moses as a limitation. Do not divorce your wife unless you follow through with these procedures had become in their eyes, you must cut her off. You must divorce your wife. Divorce for the Pharisees had become a morally good thing. As you can see, this is a total perversion of Moses' intent. They perverted the procedure. Oh, I just need a slip of paper? Well, I can have slips of paper in my back pocket. And as often as I want to divorce a woman, I will tear one off and give her a certificate. That's all I need to do. Spoil the meal? Here's your certificate. Too much salt? Here's your certificate. Look at me sideways? Here's your certificate. And this is how the men in Christ's day were treating this procedure. So that Jesus, as we get to it later on in Matthew 19, will say that God gave you that procedure because of your wicked hearts. They need a limitation. So let's take a moment now to notice how Jesus, thirdly, restores what Moses taught. Jesus restored what Moses taught. He is confronting a perverse people. First of all, as we think about this, Jesus borrowed the very language of Moses to reinforce its intent. And what is the intent of the Mosaic Code? To preserve marriage and demonstrate that easy divorce is wicked. Now let's notice something about this text that is difficult. 
Verse 32, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. I will tell you that commentators are very divided over what that means. How do you make that woman commit adultery? Looking these men in the face and saying, if you divorce her for any reason, this way that you're doing it, willy-nilly, you are making the woman commit adultery. What is Jesus saying there? Well, let's take just a simple application first. Divorce, in general, multiplies sin. Do you see that? This man who hands his wife a certificate of divorce does not end sin, he magnifies sin. He creates more sin. Now there is adultery. It creates a breach in a relationship that God never intended. In, in this case, it creates adultery if there wasn't already. If there wasn't adultery, now there is. But the question is, how, if you divorce a woman, do you cause her to commit adultery? There are several opinions. One opinion is that she begins to be looked upon poorly. If she had not already committed adultery, when you put her away, you put that stigma upon the woman. So you Pharisees need to think about this. When you put the woman away, you are stigmatizing her for life. She becomes polluted goods for the rest of her living day. She is as an adulteress. That's one opinion. Another opinion is she's enticed to adultery. Now you've thrust her out of your home to live on her own, to support herself, and she is tempted to commit adultery. That's another opinion. I will add mine to it. I want you to notice that the back-to-back statements in verse 32 are looking away from the woman and at the man. Or we might put it this way. They are looking away from the woman, and, or, or, or we might say the victim, and putting the emphasis upon the one who initiates that process. To put this in contemporary terms, uh, the verbs here in the verse put the emphasis on the individual who pursues divorce rather than reconciliation. Well, how do they do that? Look with me at verse 32 again. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. The literal translation of this phrase is he is making her to be adultered. Not making her in a noun, an adulteress. He is making her to be adultered. So the effect of it is this, that the man who once thought himself blameless in God's eyes is now full of guilt. You can no longer, after hearing Jesus' words saying, I'm going to put my wife away and wash my hands and I'm done and your blood be on your hands. No, Jesus is looking at these Pharisees and he is saying, look, 
if you divorce this woman for any cause except sexual immorality, you are the cause of her adultery. Her sin is yours. You are full of guilt in God's eyes. I want you to notice a second passive verb in the latter part of verse 32. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Here again, literally the translation is, he who marries, she who has been divorced, commits adultery. The effect of it is this, that the man who participates in this culture of divorce, remarriage, divorce, remarriage, is in sin on two fronts. You're causing this woman to become, to to be adultered, and you are committing adultery by marrying a divorced woman. Jesus, who just said that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, is demonstrating exactly what he means. Do not treat marriage and divorce frivolously. If you do so, you dishonor God and are worthy of death. You remember that adultery carried the death penalty. One commentator thinking about all of these things remarks, marriage is not a contract to be canceled when no longer convenient, but rather as testified to in Malachi 2, 14 to 16, it is a covenant relationship that calls for sustained faithfulness. Or as Martin Lloyd-Jones has said, marriage is not a civil contract or a sacrament. Marriage is something in which these two persons become one flesh. Jesus is demonstrating to you that when you enter into divorce frivolously, you are magnifying sin. You are not fixing a problem. You are making the problem worse. But at this point, we need to say one more thing to set your heart at ease. Our confession admits that there are two reasons for a biblical divorce, two grounds for biblical divorce. Jesus has mentioned one of them here, sexual immorality. If your husband or wife is in sexual immorality, then you have a biblical grounds for divorce. Now remember, not a mandate for divorce, but a ground. I want you to turn just briefly with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What if I am that wife or that husband whose spouse has just said, you know what, I'm done, I'm out. What do I do? First Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12. To the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. And now this clause... 
But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So here's the other aspect of this. Paul is is saying to you, if you have an unbelieving spouse, or, or a spouse we would even go so far to say, who is acting unbelievingly and will not be reconciled to you, there's no sexual immorality here. And that partner decides that he wants to sue out a divorce or she wants to sue out a divorce and there's no grounds. What am I to do? Am I constrained? Am I, am I uh, now and always and forever uh, in bondage to that person, never to remarry? What do I do? Paul says, no, here's your command. Don't stop them. If that unbelieving spouse wants to separate, don't stop them. Let it be so. And it is for this reason that our confession says that for reason of desertion, you have grounds for divorce and remarriage. God's plan for creation is lifelong monogamous marriage. I hope and pray that it is your conviction that this is true. And Jesus warns that those who pursue divorce frivolously are not righteous, but are magnifying sin. It is sin, not righteousness, that, the, uh, that is the reason divorce exists at all. And apart from the fall, every single marriage would be happy and holy for a lifetime. They would be worshipful unions apart from the fall. If you have problems in your marriage, do not think that the solution is to get out. This multiplies the problem. It does not solve them. Instead, begin by looking at yourself. By seeking the help of the church of Jesus Christ that He has provided you. Those who honor Christ in this way will find His blessing. And those who do not must heed his warning of curse. Let's pray. Father, as we think of all these things, we can't help but think of the fact that what a sad state of affairs. Sin has perverted everything. What you intended to be a happy and a holy and a worshipful union, a bond of of joy for life, has become hard. It is yet another means by which we are sanctified. It is an instrument in your hands whereby you show us our own sin and selfishness. It's painful at times. But Father, nonetheless, we confess what you have said. That what you have joined together, let no man put asunder. Marriage is a glorious thing. It is a a happy thing. It is a joyous thing, even despite its challenges. Give us the heart, therefore, Father, for Christ, 
that we need to be light and salt in the world even through the institution of marriage. To put to death our our lust and our anger, our animosity, our hatred, and our sexual perversion so that our marriages can glorify You. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.